Welcome to this American Journal of Gastroenterology podcast. I'm Brian Lacey, Professor of Medicine at the Mayo Clinic Jacksonville and co-editor-in-chief of the American Journal of Gastroenterology, along with Brennan Spiegel, my co-editor-in-chief from Cedars-Sinai in Los Angeles. I am delighted to be speaking today with Dr. Zobair Yanosi in the Department of Medicine at Nova Fairfax Hospital in Falls Church, Virginia. Today, we'll discuss his recent article, Diagnosis and Management of Primary Biliary Cholangitis, which was published in the American Journal of Gastroenterology in January of 2019. Dr. Yanosi, let's begin simply. Why a name change from primary biliary cirrhosis to primary biliary cholangitis? Uh, thank you very much, Dr. Lacey, for uh, allowing me to, to contribute here. Well, the change happened because the old name really suggested that all patients with PVC potentially have cirrhosis, and that obviously is not the case because there are a number, probably the majority of patients with PVC who do not have cirrhosis, and that name really was not very accurate. So what what the name, actually the new name um, uh, includes is not only suggesting that this is a chronic inflammatory damage to the ductules of the liver, the small ducts of the liver, which denotes um, cholangitis, but also it allows uh, physicians and, and even patients to sort of appreciate the spectrum of this disease that includes not only cirrhosis of the uh, extreme spectrum, but also patients who have very early PVC. So primary ability cholangitis now includes both the spectrum, but also focuses on the disease uh, or pathogenic uh, sort of lesion that you see in these patients. Great. A wonderful way to set the stage. And thinking about primary biliary cholangitis now in the spectrum, um, how common is it? Is this something that we're overlooking in clinic? I think when you look at the uh, sort of older data, the overall prevalence of PBC is about 40 per 100,000 population, general population. So the, it is considered a relatively rare disease in general population. However, when you look at changes that has happened since, say, 2004, there is an increase in the prevalence of PVC from about 21-22% to about 40% in 2014. I actually think that a lot of these patients probably uh, are asymptomatic. So in that context, a lot of these patients are probably not even uh, captured in clinical practices. So we do actually uh, overlook this diagnosis in clinical practice. Uh, quite frequently until they become symptomatic uh, or they, they present with more advanced liver disease, which is a, a lost opportunity for a lot of these patients because they should be treated in early disease. Those are great teaching points, and we're going to come back to some of those presentations in a second, so thank you. So tell us a little bit more about the underlying pathophysiology of primary biliary cholangitis. You kind of alluded to that. What are some of the mechanisms involved that lead to inflammation in the bile duct? So it's it's, uh, it's it's certainly we know that it's an autoimmune liver disease. It's a part of the spectrum of autoimmune liver diseases. But the actual, the exact pathogenesis is really not known. It is uh, considered a interaction between genetic and environment. And the most plausible theory is that the genetically susceptible individual comes into contact with an autoimmune triggering event, which in turn uh, causes the immunity to start uh, uh, causing sort of damage to the small ducts of the liver or cause chronic inflammation, leading to fibrosis, narrowing of the bile ducts, and even cirrhosis. So what are some of these potential triggering events that you see in the uh, from the environment? Some could be bacteria or its component that basically uh, causes uh, or, or induces the, the, uh, the immunity or the autoimmune sort of process. It could be some of the component of very commonly used antibiotics in some of the environmental toxins. No one has actually been able to 
pinpoint exactly what causes this triggering event, but the the, the mimicry of uh, that is process that's involved here, where the immunity is actually now seeing the bile ducts as a foreign uh, uh, entity and start attacking it, is really the basis of all of this. But of course, there are genetic predispositions. There are family uh, members who are at risk for this, so there's a genetic predisposition that also plays an important role. Wonderful. That's very very helpful. So, who is that typical PBC patient? What are what are some of the most common symptoms that alert us to the possibility of somebody possibly having primary biliary cholangitis? So, a typical patient is someone uh, in her 40s or 50s with elevated liver enzyme, mostly in cholestatic fashion, elevation elevation of alkaline phosphate. Um, it, it is important that most of these patients may not have actually a symptom when they present. We just they just present with mild elevation of, of uh, alkaline phosphatase, and in 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 some uh, uh, situations, of course, they can present with symptoms. Common symptoms and PVC would be a fatigue and pruritus. And, and sometimes the fatigue is attributed to sort of uh, lifestyle changes and, and may not be attributed to liver disease, but it's important to, to pay attention to these symptoms. There are other symptoms that are actually important to uh, at least try to elicit when, when a patient is being considered for having PVC, and those are things like uh, Sika syndrome, dry eye, dry mouth, uh, thyroid disease, or you know, some, some of the autoimmune thyroid diseases are very important, diseases that coexist with this, uh, with this uh, disease. So some of those clues can provide clinicians sort of the idea that maybe we're dealing with a patient with PVC. So one of the difficulties, of course, is many of these symptoms are nonspecific and, you know, just listening to the patient and trying to put it all together to make that diagnosis. I think one, one thing I wanted to just mention is that, that, that we, when we actually sort of describe these patients with PVC, it was usually in women in their 40s. What has actually happened is that there is actually now a, an older population with PVC that we're seeing more commonly. You can see PVC in men. And in fact, it was thought that PVC is a disease of Caucasian women. That's not true anymore because you actually have... Uh, uh, reports from Asia that the prevalence of PVC is, is rising in, in some of the Asian countries. So in every patient with any ethnic group, we should consider PVC as an potential diagnosis. Now that's a wonderful teaching point because I think many of us still believe it's the white woman in their 50s or 60s. So this is great. And so speaking about making the correct diagnosis of PVC, uh, where should we begin? What, what blood tests are essential to make that diagnosis? Well, I think the, the, the first uh, and the most important test would be, of course, to get a liver enzyme panel and, and an anti-mitochondrial antibody. In fact, if a patient has an elevated alkaline phosphatase and a positive anti-mitochondrial antibody, the positive predictive value of those two tests for making the correct diagnosis of PVC is over 95%. Now, we do additional tests, for example, I think obtaining a, a, a complete blood count to look for thrombocytopenia that could suggest more advanced liver disease. And bilirubin, I think, would be important. A bilirubin of more than two suggests more advanced uh, liver disease and, and a potentially poor prognosis. Even looking at the level of alkaline phosphatase, and alkaline phosphatase is more than 1.67 of what is actually the, no, the normal range for the lab could also have important prognostic value. I think in addition to the these blood tests, it's important to exclude other things. So for example, uh, biliary obstruction, of course, can, can give alkaline phosphate that is high. Uh, so an ultrasound will be important to exclude any obstructive uh, lesions or infiltrative lesions. And, and finally, I think it's important to, to elicit in the history some, some important sort of clues, like the use of antibiotics. Some antibiotics can actually mimic diseases that are very uh, similar to PBC, as well as uh, some other autoimmune uh, diseases, such as thyroid disease that I mentioned, as well as uh, other connective tissues 
tissue disorder that could be coexisting in the setting of of, uh, of PBC. And finally, uh, physical exam. I think if you if you see a lot of xanthelasmas in the uh, eyelids, especially or other areas, then you know that you're dealing with a potentially cholestatic liver disease that may uh, will be primarily pericarditis. So thinking then about making the diagnosis, let's go on to the next level. And what about the role of imaging? Is ultrasound sufficient or should everybody have a CAT scan or an MRI? And which is better? I think ultrasound probably will be done at the first step for all of these patients just to exclude large ability doctor involvement with some other disease or a space occupying lesion that can also raise uh, alkaline phosphatase. Uh, however, if uh, a CD, and I think that's probably it for most of these patients. On the other hand, if you're dealing with a patient that is that has uh, a negative antibiotic ant- uh, antibody titer, then I think imaging with an uh, MRCP to exclude biliary disease would be important, something uh, like and cholangitis would be in the differential diagnosis needs to be excluded. CT, because of uh, you know, lack of any additional sort of information, may not be something that, that you would need in the situation. I certainly don't, don't uh, in my practice, don't use uh, CT scan for, uh, for, the, for the diagnostic sort of algorithm. Okay, that's very helpful, and certainly people are also concerned about radiation exposure with repeated CT exactly. scans. So wrapping up the discussion on making the diagnosis of PVC, what about the role of liver biopsy? Is this essential to make the diagnosis? Will it change therapy? And do you think it helps to find the natural history of PBC in individual patients? Not really. Liver biopsy is really not indicated to diagnose PBC. Now, there are a couple of scenarios where you want to actually have a liver biopsy. One scenario would be that you're actually suspecting a coexisting liver disease, such as non-alcoholic hepatitis superimposed on PBC, uh, or uh, alcoholic liver disease, or even, say, autoimmune liver disease uh, or autoimmune hepatitis that can coexist with uh, patients with PVC. Those are the situations that could indicate uh, uh, the use of a liver biopsy. Another second place that we use liver biopsy, and I think most other clinicians would probably use liver biopsy, is that when you have a patient with a laboratory sort of feature of PVC but does not have antibiotic or antibody, histology becomes then important to make to, to establish the correct diagnosis there. That happens probably in the minority of patients, probably less than 5%. Dr. Yunasi, can you describe to our listeners some of the most common complications of PBC? I sort of divide up the complications of PBC into two different sort of categories. Those are related to the liver disease, the hepatic complications of cirrhosis, portal hypertension, parcellar carcinoma. Those are like any other liver disease that we need to worry about, and especially HCC can happen in the context of, uh, of cirrhosis for patients with PBC. So screening for, for uh, HCC would be important for these patients like any other cirrhotic. And of course, uh, looking for esophageal varices for patients, again, with more advanced uh, liver disease and PVC would be important which, uh, as uh, the ACG guideline uh, suggests to, to screen for, for varices. Now, the second category are the extrahepatic complications of PVC. And, and a few are very important to, to mention. Metabolic bone disease osteoporosis can be very common in this group of patients. So every two years of bone densitometry for some of these patients would be important in managing their bone disease would be something that one can rely on the expertise of uh, a bone uh, specialist that would be really 
really important. The ACLE guidance document, the ACG, all have uh, a recommendation about managing bone disease. Fika syndrome, especially dry eye, could be a problem for some of these patients, and, and using artificial tear would be really important. Hyperlipidemia is actually very, very common. Uh, one good news is that some of these patients really are not at risk for uh, for cardiovascular diseases, but if they have other risks, of course, they have to be managed uh, appropriately. Because bile acid issues are important for uh, uh, for fat-soluble vitamins, uh, so malabsorption of vitamin A, D, E, and K would be a very important supplementation sometimes may be, uh, may be uh, required. And finally, I just want to mention that some of these patients can have diseases such as Crest syndrome or scleroderma and associated esophageal dysmotility, and I think uh, that would be some of the other extrahepatic complications that it's important to pay attention to. Dr. Yunus, you've touched on a couple of issues as we've talked about complications and kind of how you may need multifocal therapy there. And so let's talk a little bit now about treatment. Is ursodeoxycholic acid still the standard of care? There's a new kid on the block, obetacholic acid. Is this better than urso? Are there other options too? So ursodeoxycholic acid is still the standard treatment. And, and as you know, it's a naturally occurring hydrophilic a non-toxic bile acid. And uh, the dose is about 13 milligrams to, to 15 milligrams per kilogram per day. And when you actually use urso for these patients as a, as a first-line treatment, which is what the recommendation is, about 60% of patients will respond. And, and by response, I mean either reduction of alkaline phosphatase or normalization of, of alkaline phosphatase. It is really important to remember that those who actually respond to ursodeoxycholic acid have better survival and a better prognosis. The second issue that's really important is that early treatment is really important for patients with PVC. So if one actually starts earlier, then the prognosis of those patients are, are, are very good. Now, in terms of the second-line treatment that's currently available, we have uh, obeticolic acid, which is a synthetic bile acid, and it was approved in 2016. It's an FXR agonist. It's a synthetic bile acid, which is an FXR agonist. I think it's important to know that you can start using uh, obeticolic acid uh, in addition to ursodeoxycholic acid for patients who have who are non-responders or patients who are intolerant to urso. So if someone cannot take ursodeoxycholic acid, then uh, obeticolic acid becomes uh, becomes an important important sort of option. The dose is about five milligrams, and one actually starts five milligrams of obeticolic acid uh, for about six months. And if there is response, then that's the dose that's actually kept. If there is no response, meaning meaning that the alkaline phosphatase does not improve or patients develop other complications of liver disease, then going to 10 milligrams per day is the maximum recommended dose. Opetiocolic acid, I think, should be carefully used in patients with, with more advanced liver disease, uh, especially patients with decompensated liver disease, and the dose is actually there should be only 5 milligrams once a week and can be titrated up uh, to about a maximum of 10 milligrams twice a week. So that is an important issue because of potential side effect, hepatic side effect that can happen with obituacolic acid. But if it's used properly, it's a very effective uh, uh, second-line treatment for treatment of primary biliary cholangitis. I think it's important to also define what, what do we mean by non-response uh, to orsidioxycholic acid. And this is really, if you actually uh, prescribe orsidioxycholic acid and you confirm that the patient is actually adherent to the treatment, then if there is persistent elevation of alkaline phosphatase for 12 months or if the bilirubin goes up, uh, in a patient with even even improvement of alkaline phosphatase or patient develops evidence of progression of fibrosis, whether you're using a uh, transgenic elastography or any other evidence of progression of liver disease, then uh, that patient is considered uh, as a non-responder and second-line treatment would be, would be recommended. Wow, wonderful 
practical advice. So thank you. I know our listeners will really appreciate that. As we wrap things up, a lot of our listeners don't practice in large cities or academic medical centers uh, for their patients with primary biliary cholangitis. When should they refer to a transplant center? I think it's important to remember that referral for liver transplantation of someone with PVC is very similar to other liver diseases. So any complication of, of cirrhosis, uh, whether it's actually ascites, hepatic encephalopathy, or even sometimes uh, hepatic dysfunction and, and diastolic bleeding could be an indication for uh, these patients to be referred for liver transplantation. I also have a, a rule that when the patient's bilirubin con- continues to rise and when they get to close to about uh, a bilirubin of about 8 to 10, then I would actually for that patient for uh, at least evaluation of liver transplantation. One thing that's actually a bit peculiar for patients with PBC that's not that common in other patients is really aspiritis because that actually can have severe impairment of quality of life for patients and occasionally these patients are considered uh, for transplantation even if uh, there is no evidence of severe hepatic decompensation but they have really very, very bad and uh, unmanageable sulfuritis. That could be a concentration for uh, liver transplantation. Okay, that's great. Dr. Yunosi, this has been a wonderful conversation. We can't thank you enough for your expertise uh, on this topic and educating our listeners. Any last thoughts? I think a couple of things. One is that uh, we have great drugs uh, for uh, treatment of this uh, really important liver disease. That the diag- early diagnosis is really important for patients with PVC because you can change their prognosis. There are uh, a number of other drugs that are uh, being considered, uh, bisphibrates being uh, one of them, but uh, there may be combinations in the future. Uh, but we have excellent treatment modalities right now. And of course, in this issue of the uh, American Journal of Gastroenterology, the multi uh, sort of expert uh, assessment of the current literature led to this review article that uh, that is published in, in 2019 and would be very helpful to clinicians because it does have a large number of figures and, and algorithms that can be helpful in clinical practice. Okay. Once again, Dr. Yunosi, thank you so much for this wonderful podcast. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you very much for uh, inviting me to participate. 